Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, talking about a country we definitely have not talked about, but you'll know has been on my mind if you've been, if you've been following me on Instagram or recent reviews, talking about some whiskey from Germany this time, continental Europe in general, but specifically from, Ger- from Germany. So with me, I've got Mr. Fred Barnett of Anthem Imports, and we're going to be talking all about Eiffel whiskey. So Fred, welcome. Uh, great to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, as you noted before we started recording, you know, you're a listener of the show as well. So you, as I said, you know, the rabbit hole we might go down, you know, kind of what you might expect. Um, So, you know, cheers to you for, for being brave and entering the whiskey ring. I I am a, I'm a listener. I'm honored to be included. You've had so many great guests and I've learned so much from the show. And uh, so I I really appreciate the invitation. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, before we get into Eiffel itself, let's just touch on, you know, what's your role uh, as part of Anthem and in relation to Eiffel? Yeah, so I um, I founded Anthem about five years ago. Um, I grew up kind of in the wine and spirits business. My father worked for a large distributor. I went to work for a distributor. And um, at some point, I found some really cool um, and really cool brands for my company. And I'd learned about some of these world whiskeys, uh, starting with McNamara in Sweden and then really went down the rabbit hole and started doing all kinds of research. I've got, I've got a master's in research and just, I'm really good at it. And I found all of a sudden I've, I've it opened my eyes. You know, I'd been a collector of scotch and really went deep on scotch and, and uh, at some point learned about all these other whiskeys and started just reading about them before I could even get bottles. And then, you know, I was able to order some bottles online and get some of those in. And I, I was really amazed when I first tried it because I was really into scotch and found all these single malts from all over the world and was amazed that none of them tasted anything like anything I had from Scotland, any American single malts, anything really. And they were all unique from each other. I'm talking whiskeys when I first tried these from England and from, uh, you know, Sweden, Finland, South Africa, India, I think as well. And um, I was just really blown away and started doing more and more research. Um, and finding a bunch of really cool brands, some with very, very limited production, some a, a little bit bigger, uh, certainly none as large as the uh, the Scotch brands that we're also familiar with. But um, yeah, it was one day I was having a glass of whiskey from Switzerland and uh, trying to figure out my next move. I know I needed a wanted to leave uh, uh, the company I was at and needed a little career change. And I was drinking this whiskey from Switzerland and I thought, oh, this is so good. How come nobody's brought this into the U.S.? And then I said, yeah, let's come up with it. You know, let's do that. So I ended up probably three weeks later quitting my job and uh, starting this company. I named it after a a favorite son of mine. And uh, yeah, the focus is terroir-driven spirits, predominantly whiskey, from really interesting places. Our slogan is great spirits from great places. Nothing nothing is sourced. Nothing is is fake. Um, You know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, some of those things that come from a lot of these places. But everything we work with are are made by real people, um, typically grown in the local community. Um, we work with a lot of brands that um, everything's either family owned or, or it's owned by a small group of friends. And so we're really trying to bring these unique craft spirits into the United States and show show the world that there's more than just a few things out there that, you know, there are a lot of really cool whiskey distilleries from places that you never would have thought made whiskey. Yet. Even, you know, you might go to some of these places and ask the local people in the community and they 
they'd be surprised that there's whiskey next door. It's it's really fantastic. And in scrolling through your Instagram and through you know Anthem's Instagram and just doing some basic research on here, uh, number one, it was a little more difficult because you know, you know, I do research before these episodes, but um is this your first podcast that you've been on? Um, I've done a business podcast. It's my first whiskey podcast. Okay. Yeah, it was so, I think I found the business that, one. That yeah, yeah. No, no, I found I found the business one, but I was like, occasionally that happens if it's but I was like, crap, I don't <laughs> I gotta create I'm something. actually amazed that you found me because I I'm a little say camera shy. I I don't put my name out there at all, really. On it's not on any of the website, it's not on anything. And when you reached out and asked to talk to me or Stefan, I was like, well, this guy's done his research because my name's really not in too many places. I, so I guess it is now. Here we are. Hey, I'm look, I, I was interested and I've I've reached out to I reach out to every company I'm interested in. So um thank you. You know, get so we'll definitely talk more about uh some of your other brands. I just wanted to mention a couple of them, as you were saying, you know, Mac Mirror is on there. I picked up, I've never had them before, but I picked up two bottles of theirs out in California while I was there because they just looked different. They had a different idea to them. I think one was the AI and one was maybe the intelligence. And uh, so I'm looking forward, I haven't even had a chance to crack those yet, but looking forward to it. Whiskey's from Switzerland or products from Switzerland, Finland. Haven't even heard of these companies, but I'm curious because, you know, for the same reason I was curious in, in Stowning early on in this podcast journey, when it's from a new place in a new region, a new terroir, a new whatever you want to call it, it's different and it represents something and that's fun. So, um, so here we are. And uh, while today's focus is going to be on Eiffel, certainly uh, you'll be welcome back on for, for other brands, for other, you know, bring on as many people as you want, because I want to know. And uh, if even if episode gets ten downloads instead of a thousand, I still want to know. So, <laughs> right on. So you know, with that, um, let's jump into you know what's Eiffel Whiskey's story. Yeah. So um, the owner of Eiffel Whiskey, it, it's a man named Stefan and his wife uh, Carolyn, and so he has a background as a wine importer in Germany, and so he through that has access to a lot of really interesting casts. His wife's family has been distilling for. I want to say about 400 years now. Um, and so there's certainly a long family history of, of distilling there. And Stefan ended up retiring from the wine the wine business, but he's a whiskey drinker. He's big on Lafroy, um, which I know is not necessarily your favorite style of whiskey, but um, he's really big on, on Lafroy and he's really big on some of this other stuff. And what he's really interested in is, is the barrels. And he believes that that can do a lot. We, we have arguments, me and him. He doesn't believe there's terroir in whiskey, which... It's funny because I believe his whiskeys are some of the most terroir-driven whiskeys that I represent. There's certainly an undertone, whether it's a rye, whether it's a, a single malt, whether it's uh, he's got triple malt, he's got a weeded whiskey. They all have very similar uh, things that you could point out. So it's kind of funny that he thinks that, but he does run everything through a uh, column still and then through a pot still. Um, and then really um, puts them in whatever barrels that he, he has. And he's very proud of his barrels. I've tried to uh, facilitate exchanges between some of the other distilleries and him. No, no interest there. I've tried to uh, help him out with some cognac or champagne barrels or no interest there either. He's very particular, um, but he gets really good barrels. Uh, he's done rye whiskey that he's put into freshly empty German Pinot Noir barrels. Um, the When I say freshly empty, I mean emptied within about two hours. So really nice and wet. You bring out a lot of the character there. Um, he's done things with cream sherry, which I haven't seen much of. If at all in the market, he's got some really, 
really excellent uh, uh, Grand Cru Class A uh, uh, Bordeaux cast as well. Um, he's almost got like a mini Solera system for the sherry cast that he does in a way where he he has the sherry that he gets and then he'll put it in the barrels and then he'll take it out of the barrels and put it into an IBC container and then stick it into a, a different barrel when he wants to get that one better. So then the next barrel may have essentially start with sherry that's a, you know, a couple more years older. He's all about experimenting though. He's got, I can't remember the number. I want to say it's maybe 186 barrels in his warehouse. When he uh, bottles a barrel, he distills one barrel. It's one in, one out. It's not something he's looking to grow. He's not looking to be the next, uh, you know, McAllen or anything like that. It's very limited production. It's sold in, in that region of, uh, in the Eiffel region of Germany. And to back up a little bit, that's sort of on the West side, uh, West coast, West side of Germany, um, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg kind of area. And uh, his products are sold in little shops in that area, but they're not sold in Berlin or Munich. Uh, they're really sold there and then to me in the United States. So if you want Eiffel, um, you know, you're not going to find it in one of the big cities in Germany. You're really only going to find it uh, in the Eiffel region and then here in the U.S. You know, through our offering. And, you know, to your point, I, I've seen it now only in, I guess, three places. One was an auction site and that doesn't really count because that could be for anywhere. But that was how I found my first bottle. Because I was just like, oh, a German whiskey, 500 mil bottle. Yeah, let's take a chance on it. Uh, and then 700 mil bottle, right? No, this is a 500 from um, 2019. Uh, oh, oh. It, it was called, the, yeah, it was called the, the malty blend or something. I meant to pull it out, but I couldn't find the bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was small. Yeah, because you know the 500 mLs are allowed here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Huh. So it was probably. It was probably a European auction site. So, but, uh, but yeah, I found it and I tried it and I was like, Ooh, this is, this is really different. This is a single malt, but you know, yeah. it doesn't, as you said, it doesn't taste like scotch or whatever that means. Um, but then <laughs> I had kind of, I had looked around for it. I found, I couldn't find it at that time. I couldn't find it in the U S and then suddenly when I went to California back in November, we we're recording, you know, mid January, I went to California in November and I happened to visit a Total Wine, and I saw the ba- the bottles there. I saw a couple of them, and ended up going to two Total Wines. I found a couple of different bottles, four of them, to to try. And I was just like, "Hell!" I mean, they're they're so reasonably priced at like between forty five and sixty bucks, I think, something like that. Like, or not much more than that, you know? Okay. Yeah. Uh, may, may, maybe a little more, but like nothing crazy, you know? Yeah. And, I was like, for that, I'll take a chance on a few bottles. Like, I know one was good. Try the other one. And then I, when I came back to New York, I looked at the one total wine that we're allowed to have in New York. And they had one bottle remaining of the, I think it was of of the rye, which I had already. But um, still, I was I was glad. Did the rye have a vintage on there, or was it un unmarked? I think that one was. So the first release we did was okay, twenty twenty one. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so in addition to the, besides the 2019 one, the rest of the ones that I have are all 2021 edition. Um, so, I mean, so Stefan coming from this background of a wine distributor and getting all these barrels and things, um, yeah, I mean, they, they stood out as being these really interesting mixes and we'll talk more about them as we get into the different products. But one I wanted to call out, like you said, was a clean sherry usage and, um, just, I didn't do a huge research into this, but um, the only other one that I could 
think of immediately that used cream sherry was there was a one-off release from either Deanston or Tobermory. I think Deanston. Hmm. Um, that that used a cream sherry cut, but that was the only one. Like no one uses it because it's usually either too sweet or you know, they're using other sherry casts instead. Um, but one of the more interesting things too, again, we'll get more into it, is that in trying these, I actually tried them before knowing all the barrels involved. Yeah. And I was like, this tastes very different. Like this, you know, and and so there's issues of not issues, but there's questions of terroir and of barreling that go in with the flavor itself. Uh, so, you know, as we're talking about addition, wanted to give more. Hey, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, I said we wanted to give more information about the barrels and everything on the labels. Um, when you do that here, I, I know a lot of listeners probably don't know, but the, the TTB, this agency that we all love, um, gets to decide whether your label's approved or not. And sometimes they ask for more information. And in this case, they ask for what's called a formula approval, uh, which means you have to submit your entire process of how you do everything and they get to review it and then approve it or, or not or ask more questions. And Stefan is the kind of guy that doesn't like to uh, do things like that. Like he wouldn't come on the show. I, I guarantee you. Um, he, you know, he doesn't like to answer certain questions. He doesn't like bureaucrats and and all that. And so he just said, "We're taking it off there." That's why some of them just say like aged in barrels or whatever. Um, but yeah, he wanted to give the information on there, but wasn't felt like he wasn't allowed to without revealing his trade secrets. So, which which speaks a bit to the quirkiness. On on that note too, he distills his own. Uh, rum in Germany from German sugar beets only to have a rum cast to age some whiskeys in. So just real unique kind of stuff going on. Do you know if the rum's any good? It is good. It is really good. Yeah. A little bit left at a, of a bottle that he sent me in 2018 at the house still. I'm always curious. It's like, you know, the, uh, the bodegas that are aging or seasoning casks with sherry, and then they dump the sherry down the drain because it's yeah, the sherry's worthless. It's it's more for the cask. So just curious if he dumped the rum dumped the rum rather or if he used it, bottled it. Oh no, <laughs> he'll he'll drink it. When we started working together, he told me so originally it was a set amount of, of bottles we were allowed to get every year, purchased from him. And he said, You can take your allocation or not. I don't care. If you don't take it, I'll just drink it or sell it to my friends. And he said, I don't want to see a depletion report. I don't know where you sell it to. I don't care if you sell it all to one account or if you sell it to hundreds of different accounts. He said, I don't want to know anything. He's just very, you know, very interesting like that. But I think his personality actually comes through in the whiskeys as well. You know, yeah. just this weird kind of quirky thing that you wouldn't you wouldn't see everywhere. Absolutely. So, you know, we're talking about the the different years and such. So, uh the edition 2021 or edition 2019 um what's the significance of those years or editions is it just simply when it's when it's bottled or dumped yes correct it's when it's bottled and and so because he comes from the wine background i actually come from a bit of a wine background as well he wanted to do everything that we release as a one-off so that while we release a single malt whiskey every release from eiffel whiskey no two of the single malts will be the same so you know if you open a macallan 12 from that was bottled this year, it's probably going to taste pretty similar to Macallan 12 from 20 or 30 years ago. Will there be some slight differences? Sure. But I think, you know, it's going to be pretty much the same whiskey, whereas he might use entirely different barrels. He might he might give us one year, um, you know, a rye whiskey that's German Pinot Noir barrels. Another year, it's Malaga casks. Um, another year, it could be something completely different. 
So he wanted to make everything kind of uh, a one-off. So we didn't really have that idea in mind the first year. So the first year we did uh, just single malt in the rye. And then the second year he wanted to do the vintage. So what we were going to do originally was a, a one-off every year with uh, just one different kind of one-off that's one time only, in addition to the, the annual release. So that year we did a peated single malt whiskey for 2019. And it was a beautiful, beautiful whiskey. And then we didn't end up taking an allocation in 2020. I had to decide by uh, April 1st. And I felt like maybe it was the right call to uh, hold off on that for a little bit. So we ended up doing that 2021. And then we'll do a 2023 as well. Because uh, we were able to get quite a bit in 2021. So um, we, we will have some stuff coming in this year. And I uh, guess I can announce it here first, since this is the first podcast I've done. But we will have a 10-year age statement on Eiffel this year. On Eiffel Whiskey, we'll have a 10-year single malt and a 10-year peated single malt. And then we also are either going to have a nine-year aged statement or 10-year triple malt whiskey, which will be um, uh, barley, wheat, and uh, rye. And, you know, you, I mean, you've seen the scenery on the bottles. I've got a mm -hmm. funny one on this, too. So I asked him, I said, you know, who, can you tell me more about the artist that, that does these? Because for the listeners, you can't see, but if you just, you know, pull it up on the internet, it's the beautiful paintings of the scenery of, of the region of Germany. And they're just, they're gorgeous. And they're all, they're all different. Every bottling we've done said something different on there. So I asked him, I said, you know, these are great. Can you tell me more about the artist? And maybe we can get the artist to sign bottles. And he said, no. He said, no. Um, it's not just one artist. It's many artists. The only thing they have in common is that they're all dead. He said, so they've all been dead for a hundred years. And that's why I use them. So I don't have to pay them any kind of royalties. That's, that works. That's fair. I like it. It works. It's fair. But as a result, I mean, the whiskeys are beautiful inside and out. I think it's something, if you see the bottle on the shelf, you'd be crazy not to just pick it up and look at it and think, huh. And and all the coloring you see on everything, you know, it's it's all natural color. There's no chill filtration, no no coloring, uh, nothing goofy going in there. What you see is what comes from right from that barrel. And what's noticeable too, I mean, the, the label stands out, but also the shape of the bottle is a little different you know it's not your normal wine either wine bottle it's or, a, or squat like whiskey squat. Yeah. yeah yeah it it it's interesting he picked that out himself and uh who am i to argue I, I think it looks great it's not certainly not something i've seen on anything else out there so it, it does help it stand out and then um yeah i mean i think it looks good it looks good on a back bar or on a on a, a store shelf which is something a lot of people are not necessarily conscious of when they you know put their design out there but yeah it looks good so then, and you know, without the secondary packaging going around it, you just see the bottle on the shelf. So there's, you know, nothing hiding it. So again, that's how it caught my eye multiple times. Clearly, the jumping uh, to, back a little bit to the thirty thousand foot view. You know, the, again, this is the first time that we're talking about German distilling and whiskey from Germany or that region. Really, I mean, the closest I think we've gotten <clears throat> is probably probably Denmark. Honestly, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, what, what does German, what is the German distilling scene look like? Yeah, it's, it's wild. So there are, um, there are twice as many, uh, whiskey distilleries in Germany as there are in Scotland. Um, and I, well, so sorry, is that right? I've got the numbers at home. Uh, maybe <laughs> back that up, but I, um, I did a presentation at Bar Combat in Berlin. And if you look at uh, Germany and France combined, there's twice as many whiskey distilleries in those two countries as Scotland and Ireland. And Ger Germany, I do believe, actually does have twice as many as 
as Scotland. I can verify that uh, when I'm back back home. But uh, but yeah, it's it's quite a scene now. A lot of these guys are producing a little bit. Like I reached out to some producers based on the research that I'd done, and I've got friends in Europe that'll make recommendations for me. And there were people that were like, we make 300 bottles a year. There, you know, some people make 60 bottles a year. You can't you can't import that. And also, a lot of them don't have you know the the proper licenses anyway. So some of these guys are really small, but there are folks out there that are producing decent volumes that, I mean, they're not looking to challenge the larger brands per se, but, you know, I think they are looking to make a dent in it and, and show that they can produce world-class whiskey. You know, one thing I think, and, and you've talked about this a bit, but, um, you know, a lot of the the barley that is used in scotch um, doesn't come from Scotland and there's nothing wrong with that. Just like there's nothing wrong with sourcing the whiskey, but there's whiskey consumers in Germany and, and whiskey consumers in France that are, are, you know, they may be farmers and they may be selling their barley to, whiskeries in in scotland and they're really of making of, of drinking whiskey and they start to think to themselves maybe i can do this myself and i can do this in in a german way that's not so confined by some of the rules and regulations or just the traditions that that they have in scotland and it gives them a free hand um and so i think that that's that's something that we're starting to see a lot more of these these things come in and yeah i mean i there's there's quite a few distilleries there in scotland and in germany now that i think on a quality standpoint are really good i've tried uh um to take a look at stork club have you tried that one yet no uh, it's, it's not one of mine but it's a fantastic german fried whiskey that um you know unfortunately it's not mine but uh, i'm happy to be a customer of it and it's it's quite a nice whiskey it's imported by price imports yeah i'll definitely take take a look at it and then next door i mean i i've uh probably I, I joke about it, but I've probably had more Austrian whiskey than anybody here in the U.S. We don't actually import any of it right now, but uh, I, I went to Austria, and I mean, I, I tasted, there's, um, there were 50 whiskey distilleries in Austria when I went a couple of years ago, and that's that's crazy. That's a that's a country with a population of about the Atlanta metro area. There's 50 whiskey distilleries there. We went to a little distillery, I mean, smaller than my bedroom, honestly, and they had 23 casks is all they had. I mean, you think about you know what some of these guys have they had 23 barrels we tasted 15 of them that day my wife and i with uh with the owner and i mean it was just a unique experience these tiny little distilleries that we were on the train and someone was like you know what where are you guys going and we told them we're going to whiskey distillery so we have whiskey in austria it's like you know he's he lived in the same little town um but yeah this stuff is uh it's i believe it's the future of whiskey i believe that um especially as a lot of the larger guys keep taking price increases and, and they get harder to find that there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with the quality of products on these and with no disrespect to some of our american uh craft distillers out there a lot of these guys have a big jump in europe on what's going on in america um you know the fact that we can get nine or ten year old eiffel whiskey when i don't know too many american single malt whiskey distilleries that could put you know a 10-year age statement on on a single malt whiskey and do it at the price that we're able to do it so i think that that's going to open a lot of eyes to say you know I was still will prefer my scotch and drink my scotch most of the time, but it's okay to try something from somewhere else. Why not? Yeah. And you're, I mean, you're dead on with the American single malt comparison. Like that was, it still is a big passion of mine because I'm, I'm still into the scene and, and learning more about it. Um, but I really had a period like in Q, the end of Q3 and beginning of Q4 of 2022, where like I was focused on the single malt commission, the new regulations coming out. Hopefully it, it's bananas that <laughs> still, you know, the common period's been over for three months and we still don't have the regulations out. But um, the but the idea of the age statement, 
I mean, you're right. The, the only ones that I could think of off the top of my head are guys like McCarthy's and, um, you know, Westland who have been around for much longer than that, really, like 15 years or so. So they can yep. have uh, stocks that have sat that they didn't that they didn't have to move just to keep the doors open. Right. Right. Uh, so with with Germany, too, the there, there are so many topics that we could touch on. I know we're not going to get to all of them, but uh, we'll get to as many as we can. Um, one of the comparisons I wanted to make was that you mentioned there are these certain number of, of German whiskey distilleries. If you expand that to like any kind of distillery, um, you start getting into, you know, the clear liquors, schnapps and different, uh, different liquors, let's say, let alone the beer scene, which obviously is, is kind of the calling card of Germany. Yeah. Um, how, I guess this is more of a cultural question, but, um, I think because Germany is usually depicted as, you know, it's all, it's Oktoberfest all the time kind of thing. Uh, is there a, a whiskey culture in Germany that we haven't really seen yet or don't quite, don't quite understand on the side of the Atlantic? And is that also dependent on where question. you are in Germany? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I can't, I can't necessarily speak to that, but I'll say that, you know, the generations change and I think we see a lot of the shift and maybe your grandparents drank schnapps and maybe your parents did it occasionally, but maybe, you know, it may not be your thing. And, you know, I think what, what you're seeing are people that are more accustomed to drinking scotch or, or bourbon. And in fact, on that note, to talk about real quick, our Swiss whiskey distillery, they produce what they call a bourbon. Obviously we couldn't call it bourbon here, but it's a Swiss whiskey made from, made from corn and done just like we would call a bourbon here, but made from Swiss corn. Um, but because they're used to drinking uh, bourbon over there. And so why not? You know, I mean, these countries have great food cultures. And I think if you're making beer and you're already distilling something else, whiskey is kind of like the logical step. In a lot of these countries, though, whiskey distillation wasn't legal. And that was something that in some of these countries came about as late as like 2003 or so. And so a lot of in a lot of times um, they weren't legally allowed to make whiskey. Um they were allowed to distill schnapps and allowed to do this and that, but whiskey was something that wasn't allowed. So Finland is one of the countries we work with that um, I believe was 2003 was the year, I think Germany around then, uh, Switzerland, I know was around too. I'm sure it was something to do with an EU uh, regulation or deregulation. But yeah, the idea is that these guys might've had a, uh, a history, a culture of drinking whiskey, but weren't even like legally allowed to do it. So there was no industry there. And but but that's a good thing. They're able to now make their own traditions. They can look at scotch and say this is I mean, single malt scotch is the gold standard of well, I believe of whiskey in general, but I don't want to get hate mail from the bourbon heads out there. Um, but I mean, single malt scotch certainly is is great. And uh, I, th I think that these guys are all consumers of it. And like I said earlier, they, they really they believe that now they can go ahead and make world class products themselves and really. Stefan at Eiffel whiskey, he wasn't trying to compete with anyone, you know, or really do anything. He was surprised, very surprised to see an email from an American come through. And I, I knew a lot about the products because of the research that I had done. Um, it wasn't like he was looking to export to the U.S. Like I said, he genuinely doesn't really care. Um, but yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that kind of the, the culture aspect is fascinating more and more just because uh, as it as the calendar goes, uh, the previous interview to this will be the one with um dr mark lauren shroud who wrote the you know global history of prohibition smashing the liquor machine i reversed the titles so um so it's smashing the liquor machine 
is the main title. But, uh, you know, part of the questions that we got into were the cultural questions of why certain countries in Europe favored or went into prohibition or at least tried it. Then you have the Gothenburg system um, in, in Sweden that kind of grew to other places and other nations. And it's curious to hear that some of these places were not allowed to distill whiskey, at least for, you know, quite a long time. And, and that contrast with what you said about Stefan having, you know, this, this multi-hundred year, I think you said 400 year history of family distillation so that they would have been able to distill, not necessarily whiskey, of course, but they would have been able to distill for these hundreds of years. Uh, and now he's making whiskey instead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually I, I found the numbers we were talking about earlier. Um, mm -hmm. So there's 307 active distilleries, whiskey distilleries in Germany. There's 150 in Scotland. Um, and then third place would be France with 90 and then, and then Austria with 88. So, I mean, you see, you know, I mean, and then, and then it's uh, Switzerland, Netherlands, and then Ireland. I mean, that's how far down Ireland is. And, and they've been building distilleries, you know, pretty fast, you know, to, to kind of make up for all the ones that they shuttered all those years ago. But I mean, you see where all the growth is coming from the continent. Um, and so I think we're going to enter a new world of, of whiskey where, you know, I, th I think it's great that people can now in the U.S., right, go down, go down the street and in almost any place of any decent size, get distillate or whiskey uh, from the local community. But now we're able to get something that's very exotic, too. So we'll have the hyper local and also the exotic. You know, I could in the same night have something from, you know, there's a little distillery, you know, 10 miles or miles that actually does agave, South Carolina, agave spirits. Um, but you could do that and then also have tequila on the same night. You could do, you can, they've got whiskey too. They, they've got a whiskey they do in South Carolina. I could also have, you know, a French or German or you've got a Tibetan whiskey coming uh, shortly. So there's, there's all kinds of fun stuff out there. I mean, if they make barley and they distill it, why not? Yeah. Let's see. Now I want to, uh, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole on, on my own. <laughs> doing some research on on like why the kind of western half of germany and the low countries and austria switzerland why kind of that area is the hotbed of distilling and not necessarily and and see what eastern europe is doing at the same time you know i'm, I'm always curious about that but um that's a that's a I'm much not i know there's yeah. there's a couple of distilleries in poland um i've i've tried some slovenian whiskey we were going to import and then that got a little strange but uh i know there's some in estonia but you know, maybe, I don't know. I mean, those countries maybe historically drank more vodka or, or whatever else. It might have been something, you know, during the uh, the Cold War, they just might not have had access to some of the same imports that this generation in Western Europe was able to drink. You know, I mean, one thing that's interesting about France is that they are the largest consumers of, of Scotch whiskey in the world and a single malt whiskey. And I don't mean like per capita. I mean, they drink more Scotch in France than they do in the United States or China or India, like total. But France is not a country that historically likes imports, right? So, you know, they don't they don't import a lot of wine there. They don't they don't really like that. Um, I think as soon as the French really start to culturally realize that they're shipping their barley, that their barley is what's in the scotch, but that also there's a lot of really cool stuff coming out of France now. And they're able to take, you know, French single malt whiskey and age it in Armagnac casts or or champagne or or whatever. I mean, just all kinds of very interesting casts from their communities. Um, that I think there's going to be a swing, at least maybe domestically in France, but I think that it's coming here, here in the United States. I think I think that's French whiskey and maybe German whiskey are things that we should get more familiar with here because I think it's it's coming, um, yeah. and we're not going to be able to stop it. Not that we want to. 
Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think that's a perfect segue into uh, the product themselves. As you mentioned earlier, you know, the scotch distilleries just pulling out scotch it goes for other countries as well. Um, most of the barley that goes into scotch is not grown in Scotland. It's grown on the, on the mainland or it's grown in, in England. Um, a lot comes from Germany uh, and, and that and central and Western Europe. So when I was tasting through the products, I, was, I had that at least in the back of my mind. I didn't have the casks in mind, but I had the, the source at least in mind. And I was thinking that I wonder especially when you get to the question of like terroir and kind of macro terroir and micro terroir, because you're, because one is used to drinking scotch whiskey that likely was made from barley already coming from these regions, you know, would it taste familiar? Would it taste different, uh, but still somewhat familiar? Would it taste completely different? Um, And I kind of ended up somewhere in the middle with that where like there was a familiarity like you could tell what the grain was yes uh, certainly on the single malt the rye we'll get to that's a little different but the it's on the different right malt, yeah yeah the, the single malts felt like you, you know you could tell kind of a i got kind of a highland style uh with it it was it was very light um so familiar but perhaps because of the distillation method because of what stefan was doing with the casks um it had enough difference that it wasn't just, oh, this is a Scotch whiskey that is made in Germany or a German-made whiskey in the Scotch tradition. It was different. Um, like I said, we'll get to the ride later because that one was definitely different. That one was yeah. was significantly different. Um, so with the what I also like is how different they are from each other. Like if you would ever have the chance to taste the uh, 2018 release, which doesn't have the 2018 written on there, but that's the one with no no number. The 2018, the 2019 and then the 2021 rise together you would be so confused because you'd you'd almost swear you're tasting three different grains from three different distilleries it's it's just completely different from each other um in what he's able to do with these barrels yeah it's and that also it's funny because he's in doing this with the barrels but also with the micro distillation he's touching on a lot of topics very near and dear to me like i think 2023 is going to be the year of when when American whiskey companies get their finishing act together, you know, being led by guys like Doc Swinson, some big fan of theirs, so I talk about them all the time. Uh, yeah. But you know, they know how to finish a whiskey, especially an American whiskey, correctly. <laughs> um, not over finishing or under finishing or pairing things that don't go together just for the sake of yeah. doing it. Uh, or masking those imperfections is, is something right. that a lot of people do. Right. And, you know, that's something that I look for in my reviews whenever something is finished or double cast or triple cast. It's always like, can you still taste the distillate? Do you still know what's inside it? What's the base of it? Um, one of the more recent ones was, uh, you know, Jack Daniels started putting out their single malt. And I have not tried that yet. Uh, technically, neither have I because the <laughs> they've only put it out in in first the as part of the triple mash release. That came out the same time the new bonded release came out, which was just a rebranding mm-hmm. in itself. And then the new limited edition release at the end of 2022 was their uh, twice barreled. So it was a single malt and then it was finished in uh, Oloroso casks. Mm-hmm. So the, the problem with it was that one, because no one outside of the company, it, you know, it's generally speaking, has tasted the single malt by itself. 
I don't know what the character is. Like you told me it was yeah. a Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey or even a Jack Daniels rye finished in the Old Rose, so I could figure it out. But because we haven't tasted the single malt on its own, it's like I don't know if it's it's good or not. And with the twice barreled, you know where that barley comes from? No, no idea. Because that I don't know that Tennessee can grow barley. Um, they they can, but they're not great well, at it. Um, yeah. They can't grow rye for for anything. But um, they're the the problem with the twice barreled was just that to me at least I couldn't taste any malt or any whiskey. It just tasted like a higher proof Oloroso. Yeah. I was like, this is great. This is delicious. I love Oloroso, but like, that's not why I bought this. <laughs> um, right. You know, I want to know what the single malt is. Supposedly it's coming out this year, uh, starting in travel retail. We'll see. They've changed that a few times, but uh, I'm looking forward to tasting it. And when I do taste it, then I'll go back and say, does that flavor still exist? Or is it just still blown out um, or covered up like an imperfection, as, as you said? Yeah. Um, so with the, so with the we're kind of doing two categories of their of Eiffel's spirits, the the rye and the single malt. Um, I know you mentioned earlier they also have weeded whiskey. Um and I and we'll also talk about the the peated versions as well. Um and it's it feels weird to say versions because you said it's every year is a little different. So it might not be like the rye from every year, the single malt from every year. Everything is a is I mean everything's one off, yeah. Everything's a one off, but it's also I mean because it's special and it's never coming back. I mean I I am sure to to buy a couple extra bottles when I see them out there because if I like one, and then it, the bottle goes away, I want to know in ten years like I can go back and open the, the, that other bottle up. Sure, absolutely. So I yeah. And with the you know with the bottle, it's got um, what I love either screw tops or synthetic corks uh, because they don't leak, they don't deteriorate. Yep. Um, although I'm curious what I am curious what a Jack Daniels Koi Hill would do to a synthetic cork because huh. they use for that bottle they used a uh, a regular cork but they also had to redesign the bottle and warn people that unless you are it is in your hand and you are pouring it you must keep it upright because the alcohol will just burn through the cork oh well yeah because I mean, okay. we're talking like some of them were. I hope they tell their distributors that and retailers too, because you see how this stuff gets stored. It's not necessarily pretty. Yeah, and you know they, uh, I'm sure some cracked and they because they went up to 155 proof. Yeah. So, um, anyway, so the uh, tangent on that, but <laughs> so so with the the two styles that we're talking about today, the the rye and the single malt, both undergo the same distillation process you mentioned earlier starting with the the single um starting with the column rather and then moving over to a pot still the column i wanted to note is distilled on grain um on the grist i think it was put which you know not always the cast usually with the scotch in particular it's um the wort is filtered out before it goes into the column so you get a little bit lighter you might not get as many of the toasty flavors uh, you know, to your knowledge, is that also just part of the German tradition to distill more like on grain as opposed to filtering it? And I don't know if it's the German tradition, but certainly in this area of German, that's what I was led to believe that it's that's that's how it goes. And then it's uh, you know, even even before that, I mean, they ferment for uh, seventy-two to ninety-six hours, so you know, nice solid, uh, nice long uh, fermentation time. And 
because I mean, you know, these questions are coming, so I might as well throw them at you. Uh, do you know if they're using like wild yeast, what their own, because the wine guy also, Stefan might have his own yeast, you know, you never know. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a wine importer. So, I mean, he wasn't, he was never a winemaker or at least as far as I know. Um, but no, I'm not, I'm not so sure on what strain of yeast they use. He's the kind of person that would tell you that it's not important, but he might even believe that it is important. I mean, we certainly know it's important, uh, but he really like his, his argument is that it's coming from the barrels. And then I finally did get him to admit that there was some terroir in whiskey, but his, his the way I got him to admit it, right. Was that I said, if you took one of your barrels and sent it to Isla for six years and just let it age and at our bag, would it not taste different than how it tastes now? He's like, well, I guess in that sense, terroir does matter. So, I mean, you know, it is though, you know, the, the, the climate um, and, you know, the barrel, I mean, it is a living, almost a living breathing thing. The barrel is breathing in and, and taking on, you know, the land itself. And I think that's really, he's more interested in, in that and the, um, the barrels themselves than the distillation process itself. I mean, he, they used some of the locally grown um, grain, but his, the, him and his distiller, they're just like, it doesn't necessarily matter. They don't believe that it matters, but they use it anyway. They're like, yeah, if the prices went up locally, we just, we just switch. It wouldn't make, no one would know any difference, but they still use it. So they, they have to be believing that there's some value in that. It's, it's a strange one. Yeah. And so you go through the, primary distillation in the column on the grist go into a second smaller copper pot still uh proof it down to 120 proof entry proof and then goes into whatever barrel he's chosen for it to go into yes and it's really how he feels like they distill on tuesday and friday when they're distilling and they'll they'll barrel what they distill on tuesday on friday and then they'll distill on friday and they'll barrel that on tuesday and then when they finish finished up how many barrels they want to do they're done for the for a while then he goes and lives in his uh vacation house and he lives in he lives in spain most of the year <laughs> so they'll go down there and do that but yeah it's kind of just it's what he feels like he's really treats it more like an, an artist would so it's like i i want to try these malaga casts i want to try px sherry but then he might get this wild idea of like let's blend the px sherry ones with the malaga cast and see what that does um or you know we'll do this rum cast finish with with this and I've not had anything from him that I've been disappointed in at all. Um, he's even made some brandies that are are quite fantastic. I just don't think the U.S. market's ready for, you know, seventy dollar German brandy just yet. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping it gets there in a couple of years. I'm scheduling with Copper and Kings right now, so brandies oh, cool. on my Great mind. Stuff. Yeah, um, I'm also just a big fan of, of brandy. I mean, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, so we're used to Applejack and nice. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So with with this particular single malt, I can't believe I left the bottle outside. Um, with this particular, but I have my notes, which are important. <laughs> so for this edition of the single malt, the 2021, uh, we just went through the distillation process and then it's aged four years in an ex-Bordeaux cask that was made for American oak. Right. And then another four years in first and second fill cream sherry casks. Yep. And uh, yeah, and he's really particular about his cast. Like I'll tell you, if he doesn't like the cast when they come up, like he'll rechar them. He makes sure he's his sherry. The sherry that goes in those casts is all good. It's it's very uh, much as I say, he's like an artist. He really he takes the craft very seriously, and he like none of these barrels came from anywhere that wasn't really really good. 
and and done in the right way. He's gotten barrels that he didn't like, and he just changes his mind on what he's going to distill. That he will not use a barrel that he doesn't think is is perfect for the project. And obviously, these are not all coming from Germany. And if it's Bordeaux cast, then it's coming from France. Yep. Um, cream sherry, I think. I mean, there are mul- must be multiple places making cream sherry. I don't think that's geographically yeah. designated. Well, I think he gets it all from Spain. From uh, he's works with these barrel brokers that help him, and he gets it from uh, from Spain. So well, if he, yeah, if he lives I mean, there most of the year. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, here we we do that, but I don't know that in Europe they're drinking uh, Taylor or uh, whatever. True. True. Um, but yeah, I mean, if he's living in Spain most of the year, he's probably got access to you know. I'll, I'll pop over to pop over to this bodega today and or maybe this other one tomorrow see you know how the sherry is and yeah so i could see them do that they'll send me pictures of him like tasting with uh like tasting some sherry and then you know reference to this maybe in some eiffel that you buy in five years or something like that that's i love it the the artistry yeah. of it i really do believe there's an artistry to to cask management and using casks mm-hmm whether it's finishing or the full maturation process. And in this case, it's the full maturation process. Yeah. There's nothing worse than tasting a whiskey when you're like, that's finished in something. And you think this would, these both would have been better away from each other. Like this made both of these things worse. This made this barrel worse and this made the spirit worse. It's, it's always better when you can enhance and and really marry the stuff together. And that's, what's interesting. He's not, he's not finishing, right? He's aging it for four years and then he's aging it for four years in a different cast. It's not four years and then like three months in another cask. It really, it gives it time to settle and it gives it time to grow. And, and frankly, he's he's had some stuff that he thought would be like excellent when he did the second thing. And then he'll just, well, okay, let's see what this, okay, we'll do some math on this and he'll put it into a third cask and I'll be damned. It comes out perfect. So yeah. that's, the, that's always an option. Yeah. I mean, of the ones that I have uh, noted down, like nothing is, is under like a two year age period for for a cask i think the the lowest one i have is, is the the rye it's got two years in the ex bordeaux and then two in second film Malaga, and then another year in at least in the german pinot noir um but that's like the the smallest age period that i can see it's all like i said it's not just throwing it in a barrel for a few months it's all longer term yeah and even with that we decided that after this 21 release we're going to take the ride we're not going to bring in a ride this release we wanted to age a little bit more and enhance it now i'm not i'm not one of those people that's addicted to the age and, and thinks that i don't i don't like the age question i don't really want age statements on the whiskey but he is proud to have a 10 year old whiskey i when people ask me how old it is i my first response is don't worry about it because uh, like our first year the eiffel german rye release is one of the best releases that we've ever done i'm very proud of it and it was aged four years and everybody that tasted it would swear it was 10 years old so what does it matter if i tell you it's four years you might not want it but i mean you know and i know that four years in germany is different than four years in kentucky it's it's just it's not going to be the same so um but yeah i mean yeah the, the youngest thing that he's put out for this this release was uh four years and uh like i said next this next release it'll be nine or ten years yeah, I mean the the so the single malt getting on this particular one was eight to nine year blend distilled mm-hmm. in 2012 and 2013. Um, the rye was a minimum five years, so let's say five plus. And they, you know, if you go by the general rule of like ten dollars a year, kind of thing that you usually oh. see in Scotland when it's not Macallan, um, 
when it's twice that. Uh, these again, I, I look at the whiskey and I say these are, you know, at minimum, very fairly priced, and if not better. Yeah, the single malt rye should should be retailing for about eighty dollars in the market. The total one maybe a couple dollars less in some markets, but not all markets. And then the 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 extra special ones, the peated dual malt and the peated rye cask, those are should be about ninety dollars retail. Yeah, I could be. I, I'm probably misremembering the the amounts just because I I just misremember dollar signs sometimes. Yeah. So, um, but I, the only thing I could say is I know they can't sell them for below MSRP, or, yeah. or the, no, sorry, they can't well, sell them for below more. what they what they bought it for. Yeah, they can't sell it at a loss, so um, it can't be much less than that. But even so, so an eight to nine year old whiskey, single malt, eighty to ninety bucks. Yep. That's perfectly even a five-year rye at at 80 bucks all right i mean it's a five-year rye but it's had multiple years it's imported so it's going to be a little bit more uh still within range you know exactly i mean i mean you look at what whistle pig's getting for for some of their stuff or i mean if you just look this this eiffel the pita duo malt and i know maybe we're jumping ahead but it's it's a very 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 well-made whiskey it's incredible. Uh, Johnny McCormick, a whiskey advocate, compared it to a blended scotch that he said cost 10 times the price. So he compared it to a $900 blended scotch. I think if you were to put the word Ardbeg on the side of that, you would easily command several several hundred dollars. Um, just, you know, and I think it's as good as any of the Ardbegs. And it's, it's one of my favorite distilleries. So we're, we're very proud of these releases. They, uh, they're very, very well made and they've been really well received. People, I've not uh, tasted any of these with anyone who's who said that they didn't enjoy them. They may prefer one of the expressions over the other. They may not like one of the expressions, but I've never had anyone just, you know, taste them and be like, yeah, I don't like this stuff. Get this, get this weird whiskey out of my face. No, for sure. And I've, I've given plenty of whiskeys like that to my friends who like, I like it. And, but they'll be like, what the hell is this thing? Um, <laughs> no, the, the duo malt peated was very, very good. And uh, you pointed out earlier, Lafroig's not quite my, my cup of tea. Um, but I, but I do like other peated stuff uh, that different peat types, you know, like the Kalilas, like the Highland Park, especially Stowning, love their kind of peat. Yeah. So I tend, I tend more to the Heather and the slightly less Maritime with the exception. Have of you Island. got in a spring bank yet? Uh, a little bit, not too much. So I, I, I won't say what, how I totally feel on that, but that's also got the okay. Campbelltown funk. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm okay with funkiness. I, don't, I, I love funk and rye, like a Jamaican, uh, sorry, not rye, rum, you know, rum, yeah. a good Jamaican rum from my, I've got Clarendon and Long Pond uh, right now Hamden. that I'm in Hamden I'm loving on. So not, not opposed to it. I have had ones that were, and from, from Raj actually, um, that were from, I want to say Long Pond, but uh, they're under the brand Money Musk hmm. and rest and be thankful. And uh, those were some of that. It was just so funky. I just, I couldn't get through it. It was too much. Too much. It was like 25 years of fun. Oh, well, I haven't gone down that path. But... Yeah. It starts getting into like the end of the thriller video where it's like, you know, <laughs> the funk of 40,000 years. And it's kind of what it tastes like. Um, so with anyway, getting back to Eiffel, uh, you know, I go on tangents. It happens. Um, so I wanted to uh, to we touched on the single malt and and the I'll 
was touched on the single malt a little bit on the rye, but we'll come back to that. The, the duo malt peated whiskey, I should note, there's also a peated rye, um, but we're going to focus more on the, on the kind of quote unquote regular rye, but for the duo malt peated whiskey, so this is just, you know, rattling off some stats that'll be in the reviews and in the tasting notes. It's a four to one ratio of malted wheat and barley. Uh, so 40% unpeated malted barley, 40% unpeated wheat, and then 20% heavily peated malted barley that's peated to a 35 PPM. Um, to minimum, you know, seven years old. The non-peated malts are aged in first fill red Bordeaux cast in American oak and the peated in, as you were alluding to one of these casks earlier, the refurbished and recharred red wine casks with new heavily charred German oak bottoms. So a lot of, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on. Um, so just within this, it, it is a really, it's, it's one of those whiskeys that I think is easily already one of my kind of top of the year contenders. It's interesting. It's so complex and it's also doing all of this at 46% ABV, which I mean, I'm, I'm proof for it and yes, I'm are. very happy drinking this. So <laughs> With, so, you know, the questions that come out of this are, number one, um, you alluded to your answer before we started recording, but I do have to ask, you know, where the the peat might come from or the peat profile. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure where it comes from. That's something that I need. I honestly just need to, to double check my notes and, and figure that out. It's something that that's just escaped me. Um, no one no one has asked me in the past few years, and I guess it just fell out of my head. So I, I do need to ask him about that. I'm guessing it came from Scotland, but I don't know. Um yeah, I, I will ask him. You know, the peats everywhere. It's it is basically unless you're in tropical or if, or where it's frozen, it's everywhere else. So, yeah. but a lot um, of countries won't let you harvest it, and that's mm-hmm. that's one of those things too. So we've got a Swiss whiskey coming in, um, and they have the only permit in, I guess, in the country to to get their own uh, to get peat from this one peat bog that they use. So we'll have a uh, Swiss peated whiskey, but anything else coming from Switzerland, from what I've been told, has to buy it from Scotland. So, but, I bet that, but I bet that peat from Switzerland, like there's got to be something very unique about that. Yeah, it's volcanic. It's crazy. It's unlike anything. I mean, it really, it tastes like, it's just like, it's volcanic. It's so different. Yeah. Like I, I joked, I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast. I'm not sure it's coming out yet by the time, uh, you know, as of recording, but I had spoken to the guys at Mammoth and I got some uh, samples afterwards. And one of them was a peated single malt that they make. And it was peat from Lake Michigan. Oh. So like I'd never had unsalted peat, if you will, <laughs> you know, I never had freshwater peat uh, that I know of. And it, it was just so, it was so weird and so vegetal. I just couldn't get through. It wasn't my thing. And they were like, that's fine. They know not everyone's going to like everything. Yeah. But the important thing is to, yeah. The important thing is to try it at least and figure out what you like. Um, See, I, I started with getting it. So like the first whiskey, the first scotch I ever tried, well, at like when I was at a sales meeting was Kalela. It was a signatory independent bottling. Mm-hmm. And then I went from there and I bought a bottle of Lagavulin 16. And then I went into Ardbeg and Lafroig and then didn't like Lafroig. So I kind of switched into the Highlands there. And I've actually only now like years, seven, eight years later, started to get back. I, I'm like sipping on the same bottle of Lafroig that I bought in like 2014 or 2015. Um, because I'm finally starting to like like it, but I started with Pete and then I went to Highlands. Um, 
which is sort of the opposite of how most people get in the get into scotch. But yeah, it can be very polarizing. This one though is really balanced. Though, the the Eiffel Duo malted, I found it to be really creamy. I I thought it tastes like in a way it tastes like Twix. Um, it just this like caramely chocolate. I I I think it's it's incredible. I'm actually going to go buy a, a case of it next time I get to an account that has as an I'm I'm not even kidding because we only did 200 cases of this for the country. Um, and when it's gone, like I said, it's gone. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going to have some that we have at that. I bought a bottle last time I was in Georgia, uh, and we ended up, uh, our family, we drank it over Thanksgiving. Uh, it paired really nicely with everything we were doing. So there's a little bit left in that bottle, but I, I need some for myself. It's a brand new year, the perfect time for a new whiskey experience. This January, my new experience is at Loch Lee Distillery. Sitting on the lowland coast of Scotland, Loch Lee is a relatively new distillery with some iconic names behind it. Set up by Malcolm Rennie, and now overseen by John Campbell, Loch Lee sits on a farm once tilled by the patron saint of everything Scottish himself, Robert Burns. Loch Lee's first release, the sewing edition First Crop, was one of my top new whiskies of 2022 and one of the best first releases of the year. At the end of 2022, I picked up the newer Our Barley and Harvest Edition releases in advance of my own interview with John Campbell, and both were worthy follow-ups. Each built on the clean, barley-forward, and mildly lowland style of the sewing edition by layering in multiple cask finishes. Each comes in a patterned glass bottle, evoking the barley where all of this starts. Keep an eye out for early 2023. Their Fallow Edition is set to hit shelves in Q1, and I, for one, can't wait. The third in the annual series of limited seasonal bottlings, Loch Lee Fallow Edition First Crop reflects the season of autumn on the farm, when the fields are left fallow to rest after a busy harvest. This will be the first Loch Lee release to be matured solely in 100% first fill Oloroso sherry butts. As always, it is non-show filtered with no coloring. It comes with a beautiful lavender label to match the rich colors of the previous seasonal bottlings. A big thank you to Impex Beverages, for being the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor, and cheers to you all in a new year. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. For the holiday season, December, January, we've got even more bottles than usual available to try and available to buy. If you are a U.S.-based listener, there are at least 12 casks just for this month's release, plus additional ones coming out. If you are a U.K. listener or an EU listener, there are over 30, a ridiculous number of bottles that you can try and get your hands on. Remember to use code WRP at checkout to get 25% off your annual membership. Now, I noted that on, on both the Peter Rye and the Dual Malt Peter Whiskey, the dark chocolate, I mean, it, so much chocolate came through, and it was. Uh, it, that's why I, I was trying to kind of identify the the peat to try to give a reference point. Like for me, it, it was similar, most similar at least to a Highland style peat. Uh, you know, I'm thinking like a Ben Riach kind of peat, something like okay. that. Um, subtle, more smoky, a little bit of ashy. Uh, no maritime, no, um, no rubber or iodine or anything like that. No brine, nothing like no that. No brine, a little vegetal, but again, just so much chocolate. 
and you start getting that ro those roasted components to it and the compounds, uh, it's not necessarily what you think of as chocolate, but it ends up rec registering the brain as a similar compound. And uh, I mean, I loved it. It added, when you put malt and chocolate together, it's a beautiful pairing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I mean, that that to me is the house style. Everything that I've tasted from him, even the brandies, even the rums, they have this underlying chocolatey kind of note to them. Yeah, the first Eiffel rye whiskey, the rye one that he did, it was like I told people it was a breakfast rye, right? It was it was oatmeal, it was maple, it was cinnamon, it was chocolate, it was a little vanilla. I mean, it's just everything you'd want if you're drinking whiskey at 730 in the morning, um, you know, which I, I don't advise. <laughs> hey, look, the again, quick side note, because we always reference other episodes, the uh, previous episode with Mark Schrod. Um, if you listen to this episode after listening to that one, you'll note that, um, you know, the, the image of carry nation in prohibition times, smashing up saloons and all of that stuff, uh, with a hatchet wasn't being done in happy hour. It was being done at seven 30 in the morning, uh, because people were still drunk and drinking there from the night before. So <laughs> that'll happen. Um, uh, yep. So that's, uh, that's really how it happened there. <laughs> so with the. I mean, the so putting aside the the peat, you know, we'll come back to that, and I'll, I'm happy to either insert something into the episode or, or just add it in the tasting notes, of course, um, as to where the peat comes from. There's also questions of, I think, the flavor profile of a red Bordeaux cask will kind of understand. Like there, there's enough, I think I've tasted enough things to kind of understand where the, the certain fruits that come out of there, also some chocolatey notes and roasted notes from the toasting process of the barrel. But those, I was really fascinated by those heavily charred oak bottoms. Uh, yeah. char sorry, heavily charred German oak bottoms. German oak bottoms, yeah. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about on the podcast about different types of oak and like French oak, American oak. Um, just did a piece on Doc Swinson's French toasted oak from the Tronquay's Forest. And I'm curious what, like, what is German oak? You know, what does that do? Yeah, and that's a good question. And, and on these casts, you know, sometimes he'll do things like when the reason that it may not say that it just says, uh, you know, refurbished and recharged red wine, re recharged red wine cast is because he's and not necessarily just using the Bordeaux cast. He may be using, uh, he's he's done alternate, alternating before, so he might do a stave of, of uh, Bordeaux in the state of German Pinot Noir and, you know, kind of rotate that around and then throw in the German oak barrel. So with all that going on, I can't necessarily say what, what that's adding and what it's not, um, you know, at all. It, I just, I, I, he's, he's a mad scientist is kind of all I can say is that he's throws a bunch of shit in a cauldron and, you know, but, and it comes out nicely. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure that he necessarily knows what heavily charring the German, you know, oak bottoms would do versus, you know, doing it with, you know, an ex bourbon barrel or whatever, but he's, he's willing to try it and then see how it comes out. I don't know what is adding what in this, in this whiskey per se. I just know that it really comes together beautifully. I, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know the specifics on, on that. I'd love to go there and watch him distill. I've not had the chance to do that yet. It, but just it must see, be fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would think so. There's, I can, I, I mean, I'm projecting an image, but I can kind of imagine him like he's looking at a distillate. He kind of knows what the distillate's going to be because, as you've said, the the focus for for Stefan is really on the cask. 
um, yes. and not so much on the on the distillate. So, like he knows who the distillate's going to be, whether it's peated, unpeated, rye blend. He knows what that's going to be. But tasting, you know, that day's distillate, and thinking to himself, like you can see the wheels turning and being like, mm, <laughs> this, you know, this has a little more. So, or maybe it has a little less toasty character, so they want to pair it with a barrel that will add more to that. Or, you know, there's not a lot of smoke here, but I want to add a smoky element, so let's put a, a heavily charred, um, you know, head on the barrel. So, you you know, it's not going to have a ton of surface area contact with it, but it'll have enough that you'll get some barrel char, some brand new barrel char in there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, when you when you get to do that, I'd love to to know just what it looks like because it, it like you said, I'm imagining that mad scientist just but a very quiet one where everything's yeah. in his head and suddenly he's just like, all right, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. So, um, I I love it. I'm fascinated. The so I, before we um, you know just in the last the 25 20 25 minutes we have, so I, I want to definitely talk about that rye though. Uh, the Peter Rye, uh, the uh, Peter Rye and and the regular unpeated. Rye. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. um, so the peated Rye, uh, I do not have the barrel. That the one I mailed you. Yes, yeah. Okay. So I've got that, um, and uh, I don't have the the barrel info on that one. Oh well, that's a fun one. So, um, what they did was, um. So it's aged for a minimum of seven years. And what they did was they took two different things of their selections and they blended them together. Um, the first half was aged for a minimum of three years in uh, refill red Bordeaux cast, uh, ex-American oak. And then uh, another further uh, further four years in uh, first fill freshly emptied Laphroaig full-size 10-year casts. Um, before, usually when they sell the casts, from what I've been told, they sell the quarter cast ones. Um, he's got the connections. He was able to get a recently emptied full size, full size tenure. And those casts themselves, just so you know, or your listeners know, are X makers one. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot going on there. Then the other half of the whiskey is aged uh, four to five plus years in uh, first fill emptied, uh, freshly emptied Lafroy, uh, ten same kind of cast, um, X makers mark. And then they finish it for uh, at least a couple years in uh, first fill refill. Bordeaux cast from Chateau Asson. It's one of only four wines in the Saint Emilion uh, to hold the top classification of the Premier Grand Cru Class AA. So top, top notch wines. I mean, these are wines that go for a couple thousand dollars a bottle. And he got the barrels and put them in there. What's interestingly is I tasted a version of the the second half of this. Um, so just that, um, just the Lafroy and then the Chateau Asson cast at cast proof at fifty seven percent with. Um, I had the fortune of uh, tasting with a whiskey advocate writer in uh, Nashville in 2019. Uh, and he was going completely crazy for this. He kept telling me it was one of the best whiskeys he'd ever had in his life. He was like, if I was scoring this for the magazine, I'd give it a solid 95. I've, I've only given, you know, a 97 once in my life. This is one of the best whiskeys ever. Well, we ended up, um, we ended up needing to blend it. Uh, and then with, with the other one of these, but it produced what is an absolutely incredible whiskey. So the riot itself is not peated. It's a peated cask where I was, but it it has a lot of notes that you would get from it just because it spent a good bit of time in that maker's mark in the, well, I guess those two, sorry, the Freud cast, which are ex maker's mark too, but really a lot going on. on this. 
and th that's a super important distinction to make that the rye itself is not peated the Correct. all the pea flavor the smoke and everything is coming from the casks themselves yep and so you you mentioned you got to taste the the second half of that did you get to taste the first half at any point um you know what i probably did so what he did was he sent me over a bunch of things um the one that it's funny because the the one that was the second half he called it eilay like e-i-l-a-y because it's eiffel and isla combined mm -hmm. um that's what he called it there and he sent me a little i want to say like 300 ml bottle that i've still got you know a good bit of it in there from a few years ago but it's it's fantastic but he just frankly they didn't have enough to to do it if we did it at that he likes to do everything he sells to the U.S. market at 92%, or sorry, 92 proof. And, you know, is it worth arguing? I don't know. The whiskeys came out beautiful. I'm not, I'm actually not big on proof. Um, uh, you know, maybe you need it in bourbon, but I, I don't, that's not a shot of bourbon, but maybe you need it in bourbon. And I don't know that you necessarily need it on, on rye or on a, um, a single malt whiskey in general, if it's, if it's well-made. Um, and I think, you know, 46 is, is is good uh they did taste quite nice at 57 i'm not gonna lie but yeah they, this is it's still incredible uh but yeah he, we're not gonna be probably not gonna get anything that isn't 92 proof from eiffel anytime in the future or at least anytime soon fair enough fair enough i mean it, a single barrel is... no you know I, I try he won't do a single barrel for me yeah. i mean the the 92 is a good proof anyway just because you you know you don't have to chill filter at that point and you're still not going to get flocculation unless you get really really cold yeah so yeah you, you know you're you're safe from that at least uh and i still felt like everything drank at or above proof especially with mouthfeel uh and mm -hmm. again i agree with you too that i think at least that a, that bourbon needs a higher proof because yeah. below really 100 frankly but certainly below 90 it just feels thin way too thin yeah uh, so it needs something and then it also can't stand up to finishing if it's at that proof uh that's a different issue but the heat yeah. but um the, the reason too i was asking about if you've tried both was that if i wrote this down correctly the first half was finished first in the wine cask and then in the in the lefroig and the second half was reversed it was finished in the lefroig first and then in that exclusive wine cask yeah what happened was um yeah yeah, that's right. That's what he did. Um, so, you know, you kind of get both both that way. Um, I think he felt like what happened was this is what happened. It was after one year in the um, in the um, Chateau Hassan barrels, it was great. But after the second year, he felt like it, it started to go down a little bit in a way that he felt would be repaired by blending it with that first half. So this is not taking one of the imperfections and masking it more of, of trying to take that note and bring back what we had in it previously if that makes sense but it, it worked really well um yeah he felt like that that last that last year might have taken something away so you know if he does it again i don't know if he still has access to those casts but if he does it again he may do one less year on that try to finish it and who knows a rum cast or german agave spirit or, or whatever else they got going on over there yeah, i'd be curious to see an experiment of of doing kind of a side by side of of yeah you know you have to remove a lot of the variables but let's say you took the rye picking a grain took the rye and said all right i'm going to finish take half of this the first half i'm going to finish first in a Freud, and then in x red bordeaux and then the other half i'm going to do the reverse do the first couple of years in the red bordeaux same amount of time and then go into the Freud and see you know what what impact does yeah doing peat first or second have on it like and what is the 
fact that it's matured for a couple of years and then goes into the second one have any interactions um yeah it would be great to see all kinds of things like that I, i've uh you know i thought it would be interesting if he would take up uh, you know two things to done the exact same way it doesn't matter what it is same same barrels done at the same time and take one of those barrels down to spain with it and then see what that tastes like after a couple of years in spain versus germany but the same distill at the same barrels done at the same time because that could be wild just to, to do those kind of experiments absolutely absolutely uh one of the it's another episode i think that came out yeah it came out today we we're talking to traverse city michigan oh, yes. and we were talking about how they started out sourcing from mgp as you said a lot of people do um yeah. but sourcing aged product and then over the years they've then sourced distillate like new make distillate and then aged it fully in michigan instead and of course those two things tasted very different because you're aging yeah. it in different places so yeah the the germany versus spain and then different areas of spain could be really could be really fun and uh i think i skipped over this question which i can't believe i did which is in that eiffel region what does the climate look like yeah it's a it's a volcanic uh region they've got a it's a mountainous area there's a bunch of just active volcanoes there um i have i've not been um, so I can't I can't actually tell you what it what it feels like there, but yeah, it's a it's a mountainous volcanic region, and he talks about that a lot, but he swears it doesn't matter, but you and I know it does. So uh, that's yeah, yeah. There there are some things you can kind of push off with terroir, but volcanic soil. Yeah, that that's. I mean, you can taste good. it. There's something you know. There's there's something tying all these together, and it doesn't matter whether it's a German Pinot Noir cast, whether it's a sherry cast, a Malaga cast anything that he's used um you're going to get some of these notes that are very similar across the board and and with that column still that's stripping it and then doing it through the pot still you're you're getting the barrel and you're getting the terroir and that's that's typically what you're getting you know, you're not you know frankly if you strip it i mean you know you've stripped a lot of the flavors from it but you're getting them back again from from the land and the uh, air and the uh, the barrel and you lose you lose less of it by being able to distill on the grain as opposed to filtering at first. So you're, it, it makes a difference. Yeah. Um, you can, you can see that as we go back to the, to the bottle design and the label design, the artwork, you can clearly see it's hilly, it's mountainous, um, kind of gravelly, if you will. Yep. So it's in the artwork, it's in inherent in the environment. So, you know, Fred, there, there's so many other, things that we could go into here but the uh the last question that i want to throw to you is the you know do we know where the where the rye is coming from yes yeah, so the rye is actually coming from the eiffel region so um the way that stefan explained it to me was that historically that region of, of germany the eiffel region is was too cold to grow uh wheat mm -hmm. and so they grew barley there it was a very poor region and um they called it they called it like precious Siberia or something like it was, you know, it was Germany's version of just freezing cold and they couldn't grow anything there. And, and they were too poor to go buy a grain from anywhere else. So, so rye is what they would, uh, you know, use for their bread and, and whatnot there. And the barley is coming just from the EU in general. The, the rye, rye is one of those grains that I think is one is having its renaissance for sure. Yeah. Um, but it, for me at least, it might be the grain that that conveys terroir the most. 
you know, I might make an exception for, for the single malt, you know, farm by farm kind of stuff that, that Waterford is doing, but yeah, that's, that's um, cool. it is right. It, I have yeah. a couple, I got to review, uh, but the, uh, <laughs> but other than that, the, the rye, because it's come, because rye especially is coming from all these regions around the world, particularly Northern regions that have this distillation history that could grow rye when they couldn't grow wheat or they couldn't grow corn. Um, so they had to do rye and barley, these hardy crops. So that, you know, the first time I tasted Stounding's rye, totally different. Yeah. Tasting different varietals from the U S grown in different States. Totally different. The Rosens, the Dankos, the, um, all the different types. And this too was again, Oh, also I should mention the pumpernickel rye from Middle West Spirits. Uh, I haven't tried that yet. It's, I got to try the pumpernickel rye, but also I got to try the new make of it um, at, you know, my favorite, 138.7 proof. Um, but it doesn't, it just doesn't, it, I tried that new make and I tried Rosen Rye new make at uh, Stolen Wolf in Pennsylvania. And that was at, I think, 131 off the still. And neither of them tasted anything like the rye that we've been trained to think. Yeah. It I have to caution customers I've learned over the years that I first thing I do, I warn them. This isn't what you're going to think. It's not whistle pig, right? It's not right. it's not spicy. It's not going to burn you. Um, it's really more soft. It's more delicate. It's more um, I don't want to say this because it may come out. It's more perfumey. And I don't mean that in like a bad way, but it's 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 just it's not going to be this, this spicy. It's, it's not whistle pig. It's not what, you know, it's not a lot of these, you know, rice that I, I love here in the U S but, and I know that's Canadian, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's a lot, it's, it's not like the, uh, the rice that we've been, you know, told to love here and that's okay. That's, that's the terroir of it. It's, it's going to taste different. You know, I love the fact that, you know, as much as I love, you know, these Highland scotches that the stuff we've got in Germany, the stuff I've tried from Austria or Switzerland, or South Africa is, is going to all taste radically different. And it, it should, right? I mean, the land is different. The people are different. The cultures are different. They're going to want to, at the end of the day, they're going to want to pair it with different food um, and different experiences. And so it should taste different. There's, there's, I don't, it would almost be worse if it tasted the same. You know, what's, what's the fun in that? Absolutely. And yeah, this was, it was very, I found it very subtle um, for a while. Like for even, even across different regions and, and kind of, runs counter to what i just said but the um there is kind of an expectation of rye that it's going to be spicier as a grain mm -hmm. it's going to have more of those quiet calls and, and more of the um oh i just went right out of my head the black pepper note um but the you know it's gonna have the the spice that's gonna hit you on the front of the tongue and then might warm the rest of it and this had a little bit of that but it was much more of this warming feeling it felt like a a cross between a malt and a rye yeah and, you know and i know there there is 10 percent uh it's 90 percent rye 10 percent uh malt but it felt like the rye itself was just rounded and softer and creamier uh and it, it was again it was noticeably different it was a very different it really is and it I, is something you could enjoy in the morning i mean not yeah. not to bring that joke back but i mean it honestly is something that you can you can enjoy with or without like a little bit of food you know it, it's not gonna it's not gonna overtake your palate and and like some of these spicy rice are where it's almost like in a way drinking something very peated in that you really don't want to taste anything after that 
I mean, try out, you know, try a, you know, you know, extra spicy rye and then try to go back to something, you know, soft bourbon or something. Um, right. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Like so, tasting yeah. this after tasting it after like a Monongahela style rye or something, like you would just blow yeah. it out of you, blow the palate out of the water. But <laughs> which of these was your favorite of the Eiffel's Eiffel whiskeys that you tried? Ooh. Um, I'm going, I keep going between the, the regular single malt and the duo peated. You can't go wrong, but yeah, yeah. I, I love, I love that duo peated. Yeah. There, there's something very, I keep using the word unique, but there's just something different about the, the duo peated. That's. It's um, got a lot of structure yeah. is, is it's that's the so thing. well it's... structured. And, and I mean, yeah. really like, like Compared with everything we ate at Thanksgiving, but also it was damn good on its own. Yeah. And yeah, yeah I mean, it's, you know, it's not, maybe not high enough proof for you, but you know, I don't add any water or anything to the whiskey. So, I mean, it, it tastes great the way it is. You don't want to, you don't want to dumb it down at all. It just, it, it to me is really good. Um, and I just love that it tastes like Twix um, in a way, you know, that's pretty good yeah. candy. It is. It's delicious. It, it really is there. I know there are still a few places to get um, some bottles and uh, I have a, talking point for you after uh, that i want to mention to you but for the moment i'm going to put a pin in our conversation because there are, are many products that hopefully we'll uh, you know talk about more in the future from switzerland from austria from finland uh, much more to talk about and to explore but fred thank you so much for coming on taking the time talking about eiffel whiskey about german whiskey uh and explaining you know the mad scientist behind it uh i'm really excited to to have people try these whiskeys uh see the reviews and tasting notes and get their hands on them hopefully and again just thanks for taking the time thank you so much it's been fun i appreciate you having me on awesome so hang as you usually hear hang on me for a sec after still after distilling geez after it's been a long it's (laughs) no more whiskey Yeah. Um, it's Wednesday. It's been a long week. Uh, but yeah. after recording, hang on with me for a sec. Uh, cool. In the meantime, make sure to follow Whiskering Podcast, uh, Whiskey My Wedding Ring, or Whiskey Ring, depending on the social media platform. It's a long name. Had to shorten it sometimes. It happens. But when in doubt, go to the website, whiskeymyweddingring.com. You can subscribe. You can find all the newest reviews. You can find social media links. There will be links to uh, Anthem imports there'll be links to the reviews and tasting notes in the show notes for this episode and hopefully as well there will be some hints on where to find some bottles for you so with that thanks so much for listening everybody uh, make sure to check out patreon page we're going to be starting up under the influencer again in the new year and with that see you next see you next week i was about to say see you next year see you next week